0: So, this is week three of this series on the Bible, on Scripture. And in the first week, the main takeaway was that our heart posture matters. When we come to Scripture, when we engage the Bible, um, our heart posture matters. We want to read Scripture not just for, for information, but for formation. And then last week, we focused on the question what is the Bible? What is the Bible? And to help us get our minds around it, there are a lot of different ways we could define it that would all be good and true, but to help us get our mind around it, we defined it this way. The Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human, that together tell a unified story, which leads us to Jesus. So I want to recap a little bit of what we talked about real quick, and then we'll dive into something else this morning. The Bible is a library of writings, It it is so much better to think of the Bible as a library than as a book because you come at a library, Seattle Public Library or whatever, with a different set of expectations and assumptions and tactics for engaging it than you do a book. A book usually has one genre. It's novel or memoir or poetry or self-help, but a library has it all. A book usually has one author. A library has many. A book is written in a specific time and culture, but a library has literature that spans many times and many cultures. And so when you think about it, the Bible was written by many different authors over a 1,000 to 1,500-year period from various locations and cultures and even languages, and they used a wide variety of literary techniques and genres. So it is so much better to think of the Bible as a library than a book. So, the Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human. It is a divine-human collaboration. How, how does that work? What, what is that like? Well, last week we compared it to a musician and an instrument. Whenever brilliant music is played, like you 2 violin, guitar, piano, saxophone, trumpet, whatever it is, whenever brilliant music is played, what you're hearing is both the musician and the instrument. There's an intelligence and an artistry and a skill and a will that is coming from outside the instrument, but it's coming through the instrument. So how is Scripture both divine and human? Well, we might think of it like this. It's like Louis Armstrong's breath flowing through the instrument of a trumpet, and then out of that trumpet comes this spectacular music. God breathed through various instruments. He breathed through the instrument that was Moses or David or Peter or Luke or Paul or John to make the sound of Scripture. It came through their personality and their experience and their cultural moment. It also came through their literary style and even in a sense, their wording. So the sound of it reflects the instrument through which it came. But the ultimate intelligence behind all of it is God himself. It is his will. It is his skill. It is his song, so to speak. All right, so the Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human that together tell a unified story. Inside of the Bible, there are so many micro-stories. And those micro-stories seldom follow what we would call a commercial plot with this happy, tidy ending. They tend to follow more of what we would call a literary plot. They're open-ended. They're unresolved. At times, they feel very confusing, and sometimes they feel like kind of a letdown. But woven together, those micro-stories tell a macro-story. It's a story of brokenness being healed. It's a story of total restoration. And all of it comes through a central figure. He's the star. So, no matter the particulars of a given micro story, it's important to always keep in mind the macro story and the figure that, that's the axis point of that story. So, the Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human, that together tell a unified story that leads us to Jesus. His love and his power are the center of the story, all, all of it points to him and his work. He is the central character. So even when we read about dark stuff in scripture, we read each micro story knowing that there is a macro story. And the macro story ends with the healing and the renewal of all things. So we always hold the micro story in tension with the macro story. Jesus is always at work doing something beautiful. Okay, so all of that is is where we've been. Today, I want us to come back to the idea that the Bible is a library. While all Scripture is God-breathed, it came through human authors. They wrote in a specific culture, at a specific time, and they used um, very using like, their current literary styles and techniques, c- consistent with that time, to address the issues of their day. And so they all communicate truth. But the thing is, they all do it in a very different way. Just like in a library, there may be truth in both a Dr. Seuss book and the Chronicles of Narnia, or in both an algebra textbook or Walt Whitman poetry, our approach will need to be different with each genre. And this is just as true with various genres of scripture. The whole thing is true. We believe that. It's it's all truth. But to mind that truth effectively, we need to account for each literary style. I said last week, sometimes people will ask pastors, does, does your church pastor, does your church, does Brookview, read the Bible literally or metaphorically? And I just have to say, like, no offense to those people, but that's a stupid question. Because the Bible has a ton of both. So the literary genre determines which approach we take. What was the author intending to convey? What literary uh, conventions we're used to convey it. So for the rest of today and next week, I just want to give a few different examples of, of genres that we see in Scripture and then think about our approach with those genres. Now, we're only going to do a few. We're going to do three just to see some of the differences. And you'll be like, well, why don't we do them all? Um, because that would take us like three years. If we did them all and we did them really in depth and detail, and you go well. This is a church. We should we should do that. Um, here's the thing: if that's what you're looking for, that thing that is available. It's called seminary. Okay, and that's where you go to train to be a pastor or a Bible college. Okay. Um, so what I want us to do is just sort of begin to appreciate that there are differences by looking at three. And today we're going to start with two. We're going to look at wisdom literature, and then what you might call resistance literature, and then next week, you guys we are going to look at apocalyptic literature. You do not want to miss next week, okay, because we're going to do a deep dive into the book of Revelation. We're going to talk about end times. We're going to talk about beasts. You guys, it is going to be a thrill ride. Okay, but that's next week. Today's going to be okay. <laughs> okay, so let's start with, let's start with, um, let's start with uh, a genre that we could just label wisdom literature. In the anci- in the ancient Near East, wisdom wasn't just considered like a virtue; it was a coveted commodity. It was a treasure, and we see this kind of thinking all over Scripture, but particularly in the book of Proverbs. Okay, listen to this. This is Proverbs chapter three. It says, "Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding, for she she's a she." She is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are uh, are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. So while we see many forms of wisdom literature through throughout scripture like it's it's kind of littered all throughout scripture there there are particular books the books of jo- of jo- of Job Job of Job Psalms Proverbs Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon are often kind of grouped together with the title wisdom literature now it can take the form of like little pithy statements and quick insights like in Proverbs, or it can be uh, like beautiful poetry like in the Psalms or in the Song of Solomon, or in the form of story like we see in the book of Job. So I want us to think about the book of Job for a minute. You guys, is that a crazy story? It's a crazy story. Um, We had a life group years ago that decided to spend like a couple months on the book of Job, like three months, And um, just so you know, Job is, it's a very long book, but it has a very basic plot. And they tried to break that thing into multiple weeks, whatever it was, 15, 20 weeks or something like that, because they didn't want to read any, you know, too much any given week. But what they started to feel is that after several weeks, it all started to feel the same. It was like Groundhog's Day. Okay, Job was suffering, again, and his friends weren't very helpful, again, and they were accusing him of being a sinful person, again, because God doesn't let bad things happen to good people. Can you, can you guys imagine going to your life group, and, and this being the topic of conversation for like 12 weeks in a row? By the end, okay, this was a ladies' group, and by the end of that study, they were all clinically depressed. I'm just kidding. Um, But it was a struggle for them. Why? Because it turns out that Job actually isn't really meant to be read like that. Uh, Job isn't meant to be read like one chapter at a time over many months. It's a story. It's, 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 It's one story. The problem is, and the challenge for us is, it's long. And here's the interesting literary device that the author uses. The suffering of Job feels never ending. Like if you're reading through it, it feels never ending. He keeps crying out to God, but God is silent for most of the book. The only voices are Job's friends telling him to confess his sin. Then of course, there's also Job's wife who encourages him by saying, why don't you just curse God and die? So that's uplifting. But this just goes on and on and on. Now, why would, why would you write it like that? Why would you write it like that? Well, because suffering feels like that sometimes. It just feels like it's going on and on and on. And you cry out to God and you feel silence. You guys, as literature, Job is actually brilliant. But if you just get bogged down in the middle of it, it's very dark. So if you try to read it in a life group over 10 or 15 or 20 week period, amazingly, it feels like you're talking about the same thing every week. Suffering, even worse suffering, bad advice, and silence from God. So if any of you are trying to figure out what to do with your life group after this series, I do not recommend a 15 week study on the book of Job. Okay, but the book is beautiful. And it is profound, and it it challenges a common assumption. And the assumption is this. Live a righteous life, and you will prosper. Live an unrighteous one, and you will suffer. Okay? In other words, you reap what you sow. And and there's a ton of support for this idea all through the Scriptures. Like in Proverbs 13.21, if you just take that one statement, it says this. Trouble pursues the sinner. But the righteous are rewarded with good things. You reap what you sow. And there are many other examples of this in the Bible. In fact, this belief was so ingrained in Jewish thought that when the disciples, if you remember, encountered a man who had been blind from birth, they asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Like his suffering must be a result of someone's sin, right? I mean, so who is was it? Was his his father, his parents? Was, and it's easy to see how a, a superficial reading of scripture might lead to this kind of thinking. Live a righteous life, and you'll prosper. Live an unrighteous one, and you will suffer. Okay, you reap what you sow. But then there's Job. And the story of Job is interesting, because Job did everything right. We're told right at the beginning that he was blameless and upright. He was a man who feared God and shunned evil. Job was faithful to his wife. He was kind to the poor and generous with his many employees. He was a wealthy landowner with thousands of sheep and camels and oxen. He had 10 beautiful, healthy children that he adored. He regularly worshiped God with, with all of his blessings, burnt offerings to God again and again. But in a strange scene... God starts praising Job in a conversation with Satan. What? And God says to Satan, hey, would you look at my guy Job? I mean, he is, he's a righteous man. He loves me. Look at Job. He's, he's my guy. And Satan argues, well, that's only because you keep giving him all this stuff. If Job lost everything, he would not remain faithful to you. And so God and Satan make a bet. What in the world? As a result, Job's livestock and servants are killed by enemies. His fields are consumed by fire. All his children are killed underneath a tent from a windstorm. And this all happens in the same day. But even after Job is stricken with terrible sores that leave him scratching his body with broken shards of pottery, Job refuses to curse God. He grieves in a heap of ashes where he's visited by three friends. And for seven days and seven nights, they sit with him in silence. It is a beautiful display of love and friendship. But when Job begins crying out in frustration, his friends can remain silent no more. And what follows is a series of speeches in which the cause of Job's suffering is discussed without compassion, and that, cons- that that discussion consumes most of Job's thirty or forty-nine chapters. And as his friends offer advice and explanations, Job is anything but comforted by their words. And in the middle of it, in a moment of total ex- exasperation, Job screams out. You are miserable comforters, all of you. Will your long-winded speeches never end? And he refuses to concede that his suffering is connected to sin, that his loss and agony are somehow a result of his bad or unrighteous living. But his friends relentlessly insist that it must be. Clearly, Job is reaping what he has sown because that's how God works. And then finally, in chapter 37, okay, you guys, after 36 chapters of this, in chapter 37, God finally speaks into the moment. And in some of the most beautiful poetry from the ancient world, the author of Job catalogs with breathtaking imagery God's divine work all throughout the universe. And it ranges from God's sovereignty over the moon and the stars, thunder and snow, dewdrops and ocean waves, to God's utter delight. In the birth of baby mountain goats. Or the freedom of a donkey. Or the majestic flight of a hawk. And then after this poetry tour of the cosmos, God scolds Job's friends. He tells them that they have not spoken the truth like his servant Job has. That they are wrong and Job is right. But he's willing to forgive them if his guy Job will simply pray for them. Then... Job's health is restored, his wealth is doubled, he has ten more children and lives a long, full life. God never tells Job about the bet with Satan. So while there are statements in Scripture, like Proverbs 13, 21, trouble pursues the sinner, but the righteous are rewarded with good things, while generally speaking, okay, living well does lead to blessing. Living well, de- please don't hear me say something else. Living well does generally lead to blessing. But Job illustrates that that is only a general principle. One of the things that scripture writers expect us to understand is that something can be good or true in one context, but not in another. Uh, I think there is a fantastic proverb that gets at this. You guys, this is so good. Proverbs twenty-seven fourteen. If anyone loudly blesses their neighbor early in the morning... It will be taken as a curse. So the point is, wisdom isn't just about knowing what to say. It's about knowing when to say it. Wis- wisdom isn't just about knowing what's true. It's about knowing when it's true. And Now think about what the Bible says about righteous living and suffering. I mean, I think you could probably sum it up this way. Hey, you reap what you sow, except when you don't. So it's important to recognize when it comes to wisdom literature and wisdom in the Bible, that in the Bible, wisdom is rarely presented as a rule, but rather as a way or a path that requires constant discernment. This is not to say, please, this is not to say that there is no such thing as truth. Okay, I am absolutely, please look up here. I want to, if you're online, please make eye contact with me right now. I am not saying that. Okay, I'm not saying there's no such thing as truth. I'm not saying that all truth is relative. We, we firmly believe things like Jesus is the Son of God, or the resurrection literally happened, or God actually exists as three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those, those things are not sometimes true. They are always true. But when it comes to wisdom for living life, things are not always so static. And if you you think the Bible will give you answers for any and every situation, you will either be sorely disappointed or you will make some really bad decisions. You have to read wisdom literature for what it is. Now, some people aren't really prepared to do this, and it leads to real problems. And I like the way that the late Rachel Held Evans explained her experience with this. She writes, In many ways, the Bible of my youth was set up to fail. While American uh, uh, evangelicalism instilled in me a healthy love and respect for Scripture, many of the institutions taught me to expect something from the Bible the Bible was never intended to deliver. deliver. Namely, an internally consistent and self-evident worldview that provides clear, universal answers to all of life's questions, from, from whether climate change is real, to why God allows suffering in the world, To how to keep a marriage together and raise obedient kids. The Bible I learned served as a kind of owner's manual for life. Basic instructions before leaving Earth, as an acronym for the Bible. Guys, the the Bible doesn't really work like an owner's manual for life, it just doesn't give us clear, obvious guidance for any and all questions. It is not a magic eight ball that you can consult for all of life's decisions, like whether or not to take this job or that job, whether to break up with the guy or continue dating, whether to go to this college or that college, or whether to invest in tech stocks right now. <laughs> Wisdom literature is rich with very helpful principles. They're principles. But you have to discern when to apply them and when not to. And I guess we could say it this way. Wisdom is often situational. And the Bible itself is not shy about the reality of this. I mean, look at Ecclesiastes 3. It says, There is a time for everything and a season for everything, for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. How appropriate is that right now in COVID? A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. Wisdom isn't just about knowing what to say, it's about knowing when to say it. It's not just about knowing what's true, it's about knowing when it's true. The Bible is filled with ideas that actually oppose each other. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, check out Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. These are two completely opposite ideas that come one verse after the other. Verse 4 says, don't answer the foolish arguments of fools or you will become as foolish as they are okay you got that don't argue with fools look at verse five be sure to answer the foolish arguments of fools or they will become wise in their own estimation what is this writer having a bad day Did God pick somebody who had schizophrenia? What's what's happening here? Can, Can I just point out? I'm pretty sure that the author was well aware of the tension. So what does this mean? Well, I think it means that this author and other authors that wrote in the same genre, they understood that life is actually pretty complex. So if you read this proverb, you're supposed to realize sometimes... It's good to argue with people who are foolish, and sometimes it's not helpful at all. So choose wisely. You have to use your brain, and you have to operate through life with discernment. And this brings me back to a key insight in reading wisdom literature. Okay, this is not true of every genre of the Bible, by the way, but specifically wisdom literature. Wisdom literature er, wisdom is often situational. So if you take one verse or 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 one concept from, from wisdom literature and then you try to just mindlessly apply it to, to everything without thinking, it may leave you more lost than found. It's like it's like you know, a little like programming your GPS, your Waze or your Google Brian, um, or whatever to take you to your your destination, and then it gives you a direction that every instinct in your body says, that can't be right, but but your navigation insists, and so you just go on with it anyway. Um, There is a classic scene from the show The Office that illustrates this, and I want us to watch this clip together because I think we can all relate. Roll it. For six. Last chance is the Elmhurst Country Club, other side of the lake on the southeast side. I don't get it. I really don't get it. I thought this would work. Through everything I had at that guy, nothing. That's how it goes sometimes, you know. You lose everything, and everything falls apart, and, and eventually you die, and no one remembers you. That is a very good point, Dwayne. Make a right turn. Wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no. It means bear right. No, up there it said right it said take a right no 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 look it it means go up to the right bear right over the bridge and hook up with 307. Make a right. maybe it's turn. a shortcut dwight it said go to the right it can't mean that there's oh, a lake right. there i think it knows Straight. where it is going this is the, the lake. machine this knows. Is the lake. stop yelling at me no it's stop up there there's no room here remain calm i have trained for this okay exit the window Make a U-turn, if possible. Look out for leeches, Michael. Are you okay? Swim for it. I got you. I got you, Michael. Michael, Michael, If you follow a principle found in the, in the Bible's wisdom literature, and you follow it no matter what, you know, the machine knows. <laughs> it, it can lead you into a lake or something worse. So, so keep in mind, wisdom is often situational. It can do wonders for you, and it will do wonders for you, but you have to discern when to apply it. Now, that does not mean that we treat the whole Bible this way at all. This is how it works with a particular genre, with wisdom literature, but other, genre, other genres are much more concrete, much more literal. They are intended to be read using very different strategies. Okay, so so let's let's shift completely, shift gears, and look at one more genre, and then we could call this resistance literature. It's easy for modern day readers to forget that the Bible was written by oppressed religious minorities living under the heels of powerful nation-states known for their extravagant wealth and violence. For the authors of the Old Testament, it most often was the empires of Egypt or Assyria or Babylon or Persia. For the authors of the New Testament, it was what empire? The Roman. And these various superpowers which inflicted centuries of suffering became collectively known by the authors of Scripture as Babylon. And one of the most pressing questions facing the people who gave us the Bible was, how do we resist Babylon? Both as this oppressive exterior force and this inner temptation to be assimilated into its, its ways. So so how could the people of God resist these empires and their oppression and at the same time not be assimilated into their culture, not adopt their values, start worshiping their gods, not begin to slowly conform to their way of life? And in this sense, so much of Scripture qualifies as resistance literature. And usually the most significant character in this literature is the prophet. Now when we hear that word, okay, prophet, in our culture, many of us envision somebody who predicts the future, right? Isn't that what we envision? But that's not really a biblical picture of a prophet. In the, in the Bible, okay, a prophet is a truth teller who sees things as they actually are, past, present, and future, and who challenges their people to acknowledge that, that reality and then to imagine a better one. This calling gives us some of Scripture's most memorable characters, guys like Jeremiah and Daniel and Jonah and John the Baptist. And this gift that they had was that prophets could see what's wrong in a way that mainstream folks tend to ignore. And they would name it, and it would upset people. The the life of a prophet was often tough, lonely, um, and, and isolated. They were mistakenly, very often mistakenly, considered unpatriotic when really, they loved Israel. They loved it too much to allow injustice and abuse to just continue unchallenged. So they would cry out, hoping that somebody would listen. And mostly, they were mocked, hated, or just ignored. But every so often, a ruler actually listened to one of the prophets Many of you know the story. David famously repented after Nathan confronted him about committing adultery and then murder to cover it up. But most of the time, when the prophets spoke out against the rulers, it put them on the wrong side of the law. It put them in danger. I mean, this was the case for John the Baptist, right? He was imprisoned and eventually beheaded by Herod Antipas, not because he followed Jesus, but because he publicly criticized Herod. And his continual excesses with with money that could help people. And his immorality in the way that he was living. But it wasn't just corrupt kings or foreign rulers that made the prophets angry. The, The prophets directed their most stinging critiques at the injustices of their own people. An evil king or foreign empire was kind of a given in the ancient world, but when, when Israel herself, like as a nation, indulged in greed or sexual exploitation, when she oppressed her workers or continually neglected the poor, the prophets got very angry and they got very vocal and very loud. The prophet Amos became furious that Israel carried on with empty worship while at the same time exploiting the poor and the oppressed. So he spoke on behalf of God carried by the Holy Spirit. Now listen to the bite of this critique toward the nation of Israel. It says, I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all of your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. Nothing drew harsh words like ongoing injustice. But thankfully, the prophets, they did more than just criticize. They named reality and called people to something better. But they also gave the fuel that's needed for any resistance movement. Hope. Hope. The prophet would insist, despite all evidence to the contrary, that the God of slaves and exiles and the poor and the oppressed remains present and powerful, enthroned over all creation and above every empire. The prophets would recite image after image after image of hope. And I could spend hours, just hours, like sharing examples of this with you guys. But let's look at one. This is Isaiah. This is in Isaiah, who spoke to his oppressed people who were being absolutely beaten down in their day. He says, yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power. He will rule with a powerful arm. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. He will gently lead the mother sheep with their young. Now, the book of Isaiah contains, you guys, it contains stunning imagery. And so much of it was quoted by Jesus and the New Testament writers about Jesus. Because as in Isaiah's day, in the day of Jesus, Israel was deeply oppressed and the people of Israel knew Isaiah like the back of their hand because those images and those metaphors were hope and they clung to them and they were praying like crazy and waiting for God to move for the imagery of Isaiah to break forth into reality and, and, and become a reality for them. So one day along comes Jesus and with the imagery of Isaiah in people's minds he said things like, I am the good shepherd. Wait, what, you? You're the one? Yes. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Now, the Jewish people expected a military leader, right, to rise up and to to lead them, to unify them, to militarize them, and to help them violently overthrow Rome. A Messiah who would establish a new kingdom that would last forever. And make no mistake, Jesus came to start a revolution, a resistance. It just didn't look the way anybody expected. But it began. And it continues, and you and I are called to join and participate. And in our day, in in our world right now, there are so many cries for justice in our world. It's almost deafening. But the ultimate resistance to injustice, you guys, is found in Jesus. To follow Jesus is to join in the rebellion. Now, when you think about it, doing or saying something in the name of Jesus speaks in defiant contrast to edicts carried out in the name of Caesar or in the name of the king or by the authority of the president. Declaring Jesus is Lord implies by default that the present rulers are not quite as sovereign as they may seem. Even calling Jesus the Son of God originally stood in contrast To the emperor of Rome, to to Caesar, who demanded to be known by the Romans and everybody they conquered by that very title. In calling Jesus Lord or doing things in Jesus' name, the New Testament writers made a bold declaration about the nature of reality itself. Um, N.T. Wright summed up that declaration this way. I love this. He says, God has become king in and through Jesus. Jesus. A new state of affairs has been brought into existence. A door has been opened that nobody can shut. Jesus is now the world's rightful Lord, and all other lords are to fall at his feet. As we move into the Gospels, these these stories of Jesus and his resistance, it's important to remember that these stories do not begin with a once upon a time. they, They begin with, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. The gospel stories of Jesus are rooted in empire and resistance. So when Jesus stood up in the synagogue in Nazareth and he read from the scroll of Isaiah, everybody understood that Jesus was speaking words of revolution. Now we read this last week, but listen to these words. free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began his sermon that day by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Can you guys imagine being in the synagogue that day? Hearing those words, it says the eyes of everyone were fastened on him. Well, yeah, they were. I mean, they had been waiting 700 years for this. But the resistance of Jesus didn't involve violence. It centered on love and grace and kindness and courage. It would defeat kingdoms, but it would defeat them softly from the bottom up not impose itself through force or violence from top down. And so many in Jesus' day dismissed him because this wasn't they were lo- what they were looking for. They dismissed him as a dreamer or a fraud. But for those that have taken his call seriously, they really have overthrown evil regimes without firing a shot. It has happened all over the world for 2,000 years, again and again and again. Guys, it is an incredible thing to call Jesus Lord. The heart of resistance literature is a call to subvert something, to see things as they really are and then embrace a better vision, to let Jesus show us the better way and then to live into it. When Jesus taught People to pray when he taught his disciples to pray he said pray like this father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven you guys that is a resistance prayer there is a stand it's a stand against the the rulers of this world It's a stand against a a culture that is not in alignment with the way God wants things to be. It's a stand against evil and corruption and oppression. It's asking God to use you and me as rebels to fight every kind of darkness. It's asking it it, it, to become the kind of people who, who, who bring heaven, right? The kingdom of God everywhere they go. Like that's the dream. That's the goal. That's the resistance. And where does it happen? When does it happen? It happens when we engage with our spouse and our kids. We can bring heaven to earth in our home. It happens when we interact with our neighbors. We bring heaven to earth in our neighborhoods. It happens when we go to work because we can bring heaven to earth in our workplaces. It happens when we go to the gym right? Or we hang out with our friends or we post stuff on social media. We can bring heaven to earth everywhere we go in everything we do. And that's the goal. The goal is the same. Leave this place looking and feeling more like heaven because I was here. And boy, if you, if you join Jesus and you let him fill you with his kind of power, and you apprentice under him, and you let him teach you his ways, he will make you into an agent of real change. This is the call. This is the invitation. This is what it means to do anything in Jesus' name. It's to, do- to join Jesus in the resistance. Okay, This is the underlying theme in all of the resistance literature. It's easy to read it and miss it. The more clearly you see it the more it will make sense and the more you can accept the invitation of jesus go into the world be the salt of the earth be the light of the world live your entire life or learn to live your entire life in Jesus' name all right you guys today we looked at wisdom literature and resistance literature Next week is apocalyptic literature. And I'm telling you, today was fine. Next week. Father in heaven, I thank you. I thank you that we have this thing called the Bible, that we have this thing called scripture, this library of writings come from many times, many places through many authors who speak with one voice. And God, I pray that you would help us more and more and more to engage it not just so that we know it and understand it and can quote it and and feel smart about ourselves, but so that we can be formed by it, so that we actually can become people who join the resistance, who oppose and fight darkness everywhere we go. God, would would you rise up in us as individuals? Would you rise up in us as a church? And would you help us to make a difference in this world we find ourselves? We need you and we want to be light, we want to be salt. So God, would you make that a reality through us and in us?